0: created a space where we can celebrate the unsung and the undervalued. A place where we focus on the many talents and influences for women within the culture in hopes to inspire women everywhere to overcome adversity in a male-dominated world. Welcome to Woman in Hip-Hop. up everybody welcome to woman in hip-hop podcast i'm your host jazzy bell and on this show we focus on the many talents and influences from women within the culture and today is going to be an amazing show because i have an amazing guest she is a former music executive for both def jam records and arista records and she is responsible for some very legendary hits in both r&b and hip hop and i'm so excited to be talking with her today y'all say hello to Drew Dixon. Hey, Drew. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you. I'm ecstatic to be talking to you today. I've been following your journey uh, for a little bit now and just kind of been on the gram. like, mm. I can't wait till the podcast get back up and running again because I would love to have her as a guest and you're here and I'm, I'm honored.
1: So happy to be here.
0: So, I know a lot of people is familiar with, um, at least on the record documentary that's currently on HBO Max, and we're going to get into that, but I really want to have fun with you today, and the thing that I love about you is that you have so many accolades Mm. that I just want to have this episode be dedicated to honoring you and all of your accolades. So can we talk about that? Oh my gosh, I'm about to
1: cry over here. <laughs>
0: we'll bring some tissue if you so, do. Oh yes,
1: thank you. I, was, I mean, you know, it's, it's something that I really kind of didn't think about for such a long time because I kind of put the whole chapter behind me yeah. and I realized after I spoke out about the bad stuff that happened to me in the music industry that I had also cut myself off from all the good stuff and the things I'm really proud of. So Mm. one of the greatest things about coming forward is that I am getting to kind of reclaim my own story and memories and share it with my kids who are like shocked. Yes, and with, you know, in situations, in conversations like this, it's really amazing.
0: Yes, yes. The gift. Thank it you. It really is. And you're so welcome. Oh. And um, so I'm glad that you said that because this is what we're going to do today for you. Right. We're going we're to celebrate your accomplishments. So first thing first, I like to give people somewhat of a backstory. Um, and I know you grew up in D.C. So yeah. talk to me about growing up in D.C. and when you first fell in love with the culture hip hop. Mm. So I grew up in
1: D.C. when it was still a predominantly black city. I was born in 1970,
0: so I'm old. No, season, honey. Season.
1: (laughs) Um, You know, and both of my parents were involved in politics. My dad was a city councilman and the chairman of the city council. My mom went on to be the first black female mayor of a major city. Mm. So I grew up very involved, knocking on doors, passing out flyers. And so, you know, black culture and black, liberation and power and politics was kind of like our family purpose, our family mission, and in Mm -hmm. some ways our family business. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with that, and I felt like it was my job and responsibility to in some way give back and and contribute to my people. But I also was a music head always. Okay, And I grew up, you know, whether it was Luther Vandross, Anita Baker, Earth, Wind & Fire, Stevie, you know, that was the soundtrack— of Washington, D.C., we had five black radio stations wow. when I was growing up. Yeah. So, you know, but then I, I'll i be honest, in school, I was, like, into alternative music. I was, like, the Smiths, the Cure. like. So my sister was actually very amused when she got my business card at Def Jam because <laughs> at the beginning it said, Drew Dixon, director of A&R and I don't know why they even said that. Mm-hmm. But she was like, R&B? She was like, really, Drew? Because do you even listen to R&B? I was like, yes, I listen to (laughs) R&B. But I was, you know, I soaked up R&B, but I like sought out kind of alternative music. Mm -hmm. And when hip hop, I was a Prince fan too, like Prince, Sade, they were like kind of alternative. I was a big Michael Jackson fan. But then when hip hop happened, and I I first became aware of hip hop in the summers um, because I went to, this is kind of an embarrassing way to explain You know, discovering hip hop on Martha's Vineyard.
2: Okay. But
1: you know, (laughs) a little bougie. Right. I was Uh, on Martha's Martha's Vineyard, Vineyard. eight years old, (laughs) and the the kids from New Rochelle were talking about Rapper's Delight. And I was like, what is that? And hip-hop, I started to fall in love with hip-hop because it was black, but it also felt alternative. It felt rebellious, like alternative music to me. It was. Right? Because it was underground. Absolutely. And, you know, it also had so many lyrics. You know, it was just dense with the wordplay, which I also kind of connected to alternative music because it was like that poetry, Mm kind of like the brainy wordplay of hip-hop. And the rebelliousness of hip-hop felt like very much like my lane but then the tracks were soul. The tracks were black, you know, soul loops. Right. So for me, hip hop was like, yo, this is it. Like this is this is my sweet spot. So mm-hmm. I fell in love with hip hop and then I went to Stanford. Um and then my mom ran for mayor and I I came home, worked on her campaign, and I went to Howard for a year.
0: Wow.
2: Okay And when I was
1: at Howard, I was there when Puffy was there, Mark Pitts. <sighs> You know, I didn't, I don't think I knew, I don't think I knew Puff then, like he was around, but you know, hip hop was like bubbling. Like, you know, I Mm -hmm. threw parties, I threw these Wednesday night parties called Nights with Flavor.
0: Nights with Flavor. (laughs) Nights with Flavor.
1: (laughs) And that's when I really was like, wait, like hip hop is more than just like music that I love. It's a movement and it's an industry and I want to be a part of that. And that's when I just decided I had to figure out how to do it. And I found out about A&R, and I was like, that's the lane for me, because I was always the person who was, like, picking the new stuff,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. And I was like, okay, how do you do that? And that was, that was how it all started.
0: That's yeah, so dope. I remember, because in the documentary you talk about, your parents being politicians and you being a part of that campaign and being in control of some of the acts. The music's at the inaugural ball. Yeah, talk about that.
1: <laughs> so I got to plan like the youth stage for okay. the inaugural ball. And I, you know, I was like, okay, great. I'm gonna pick my favorite artist. I we tried to get tribe, but I think I I think they didn't come because they wouldn't wear tuxedos. And I was like, I don't care, but like whoever was like in charge of the whole thing was like, no, they have to. So I was like, okay. We got Kwame. Okay. We had... Um, polka dot. Polka dots, for sure. You want that Yeah. Polka dots? Yeah. B- polka dot. Nice. I think it was like a polka dot <laughs> bow tie, if I remember. Um, wait, did we get um, third base? I think we had third base. And we had Rare Essence, because I'm a Go-Go fan. Yeah, I'm from D.C. What well, D.C., you know. The home of it. Yeah. So, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I just, that was like my first kind of taste of, wait, I can do something here. Yeah, you, know? you were
0: already like in the mix. A Didn't little even bit. know that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's when I was like, wait, okay. You know, I had to figure out who to call at the labels to get the artist. Mm-hmm. And that's when I was like, wait, the labels. I should work for a label. Like, that's where it's going down. And so, when I went back to Stanford for my senior year, I created a vision board. And it was kind of like my favorite artist, you know, like Brand Nubian and Brandy MC. And I also fell in love with West Coast hip hop because I was in California. So Too Short, you know, like Ice Cube. NWA, I remember I was driving with a friend on like the El Camino Real when I heard Snoop for the first time. And I had to pull over. I was like, I can't drive right now. I need to just stop and listen to this. Like, what is happening? So dope. And I just, (laughs) you know, I had this vision board with my favorite artist, but I also had Russell Simmons in the vision board. Because I was like, (sighs) that is kind of the blueprint, you know, Mm. for what Mm. it means to... Not just make these records, but to make these records relevant and to create a space in the culture for this music to get oxygen and to get, you know, bandwidth and to be seen and heard. And I was like, yeah, like I wanna, I wanna, I wanna do that.
0: So you graduate from Stanford, Mm -hmm. and you moved to New York City. Yeah. Brooklyn, to be exact, right?
1: Well, yes. I mean, actually, I'm going to be straight up. I didn't graduate right away. I had to take some classes at NYU, but I eventually did graduate. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I came to New York. I answered phones at Jive Records, Warner Brothers Records, and I was living in Manhattan then, but then I moved to Brooklyn in a brownstone with a bunch of friends who were all somehow affiliated with hip-hop like nice maddie c who wrote the unsigned hype column but the source was in the top floor his girlfriend lee who'd gone to high school with me was in my apartment it was three women with boys names drew lee and tony wow in the, in the garden apartment and it was hot we had no ac we wanted to throw parties so lee and i went to the harbor store got like rakes and cleaned up the, the yard yeah. and we threw parties and maddie would push his turntables to the window on the top floor and dj and Maddie had written about Biggie, because Biggie was around the corner, not he was still doing entrepreneurial activities uh-huh. okay. at the time. Um, Street pharmacist. He was exactly. <laughs> Walt White. <laughs> but so Maddie knew Biggie. So Biggie would come to our parties. And I was then by that time working at Empire Artist Management as a receptionist. So I knew like Primo and Guru and J And so they would come through. Um and you know we you were just, in the mix. It was the mix. It was nineteen ninety three. Okay. And we threw these parties in our backyard, you know, party and bullshit was out, you know. He had just gotten signed by Puff. Okay. And um, yeah, like, you know, come clean was out by J. Rue. We, I we were killing it in right. the backyard. <laughs> and um but I was still answering phones, hopping the train. I mean, for real. It was, you know, I was it was I was making like one ninety nine a week, I okay. think. Okay. Um, You were
0: thugging it out. You were paying your dues.
1: I was. I was. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is my story is crazy because my mom was the mayor still. And so when she would come to visit, you know, she would get like a security detail, you know, because she was the mayor. (laughs) And they would like, we would have dinner and she would drop me off. And then she called me. She's like, so the the police who like were in my detail said that you shouldn't live here. (laughs) And I was like, well, maybe they shouldn't drop me off because, like, I'm gonna live here.
0: Yes, mom.
1: And they need to just stay out of my mix, you right. know? Right. Yeah. And she was kind of like, "Are you maybe gonna go to law school?" I'm like, "No, I'm good. I'm wow. good." Wow. And um, you know, I I stayed and I kept answering phones and then, anyway, yeah, that's that's how it all started.
0: Now, just to give my audience some, I guess, further context and and go a little bit more in depth when it comes to who Maddie C was at the time. Who? Maddie, is it Maddie's? Maddie? Oh, yeah, Maddie yeah.
1: Capolanga. Maddie,
0: Maddie C. Maddie C. He, at the time, was he... He wrote The, for the at, Source. The Source, right. He was part of the Mind Squad. Mind Squad. And I remember seeing Notorious B.I.G., um, a picture of him in Unsai Hype. Yeah. And that was what Maddie C.
1: Maddie C. May wrote that happen. column. He that's wrote it. that column. Yeah. And that's,
0: I want to say, that's how, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because you know all the facts, because you was in the mix. <laughs> that's how he... Got on Puffy's radar. As far as I know. Mm.
1: As far as I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: House parties with Biggie. Yeah. Give me a Biggie story before we get any further, because we Gosh. need a Biggie story that no one has heard before, you know? coming straight from Drew Dixon, that lived in apartment in Brooklyn in the neighborhood. That Biggie literally. Gosh,
1: in. you know what my one of my greatest regrets is that I didn't save those little teeny tapes in my answering machine because every voicemail was a rhyme. Like Drew, eyes blue, I'ma come through. Da, 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 da. Like, and I saved none of them. And it's just like, I mean, they would have been like gold at yeah. this point. Um, you know, I would say one of I mean I have a, you know, a bunch of Biggie stories, but one of them is when I first got the Def Jam job. Okay. And by then Biggie was on bad boy but his record hadn't come out yet right and i wanted to sign junior mafia biggie told me about junior mafia okay and he introduced me to daddy o and un you know un, uncle P- un, un yep
2: uh-huh.
1: and lance un mm-hmm. and <laughs> you know told me they had this group that biggie was developing called junior mafia and it had a female MC, and she was dope and i heard the demo i still have that demo and it was crazy and i brought them all into my office at Def Jam, which was like tiny. It was like smaller than like a rug. I mean, it was small and it had no window and one working speaker. Yeah. You know, in the stereo. But I called Russell and I didn't tell him he was on speakerphone because I thought he'd be so excited. And I was like, yo, there's this group. It's crazy. It's Biggie's group. It's called Junior Mafia. And there's this MC named Kim. She's insane. And like, like everybody in the group was crazy. Like they can all rhyme.
2: Right.
1: And he was like, yo, like, fuck that. Nigga, Biggie, he's not gonna sell more than ten thousand records outside of Brooklyn. Like nobody, but like ten thousand people, and like you, because you have something to prove. Care about him? He's not gonna sell any records. And girls can't sell records. I tried with Boss. You know, I tried with Nicki. It's not gonna work. And I was like, well, first of all, you're on speakerphone. And he was like, yo, you called me on speakerphone. Are you to tell me. And I was like, yo, my bad. He said, like, well, actually, he's like, you know, what, Biggie, fuck that. I already told you that. I told Puff this. I told Dre. It's not happening. Like, yo, no disrespect. And then I, I like, just went off. I was like, yo, you're crazy. Like, I'm telling you. And then Big was, like, giving me the kill sign. Like, Drew, like, you really, like, this is the job you wanted. Like, you know, I've known you for two years now. And you finally, maybe three at this point, have the job you want He's to. telling you to
0: relax because you're going in on your He's boss? He's like,
1: don't go in on Russell Simmons. I guess it was too, it felt like an eternity. But okay. I guess now that I look at it, it was 94. And I only came to New York in 92. So it really was just two years. Right. But... Yeah, he was like, yo, Drew, you're bugging. So I mean, obviously he, he didn't listen to me. I didn't get to sign Junior Mafia. Rob Tilo signed them at Atlantic. Yes. I got a little thank you in the credits. <laughs> as a, as did other AR people at other labels that also wanted to and couldn't. So I'm not the only one. But um that's that's one of my big stories. That's yeah. a big
0: hip-hop fun fact. Yeah. I tried. I, I love that. And we're gonna talk more and more about how you tried other times. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> just to further cement uh, the point that I'm trying to make when it comes to you having the eye and mm-hmm. the ear and mm-hmm. just having that gift of of knowing talent and finding talent. Okay, so we fast forward to um, you working at Def Jam. Um, what was that call? How did that happen?
1: So after the Empire Management job where I was a receptionist, I did get a job not answering phones as an executive at Zomba Music Publishing. hmm And actually, I signed Nas to his first publishing deal right before Illmatic dropped. I signed Eric Sermon to a publishing deal. So I was kind of close, but I still wasn't doing what I really wanted to do, which was make records, like sign artists, not just songwriters. Right. So over the, like, two and a half years, I guess, maybe two, if, like I said, it feels like it was a long time. It was really probably two years. Over the two years that I'd been in the city at that point, I'd met people, you know, just kind of hanging out. Hi, my name is Drew Dixon. I want to do AR and the hot new shit is boom, boom, boom. And everyone's like, we know, we know, you're Drew Dixon. You want to, we know, like, we get it. <laughs> Hungry. Stop it. And so he knew me, like, by then as okay. like, I'd already, you know, said that many times. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you're right. And like, you're generally right about the hot new shit. Like, I get it. And um, so his ex-girlfriend at the time was a woman named Michelle Griffin, who's now actually married to uh, Black Thought.
2: Okay. So
1: Michelle Griffin and I had become friends. Yeah. And Michelle called me, and she was like, Drew Barina. She called me Drew Barina. She's like, Drew Barina, Russell Rush needs an A&R person, and he knows about you, and he knows how smart you are, and he knows that you know what's dope. Like, I think you should go for it. And I was like, of course. Like, yes. Like, of course I want to do that. He's
0: on my vision board.
1: Yeah. In fact, they both were, which is crazy, which makes me sound like a stalker, but I swear to God, it was him with her at a fashion show. Michelle. Yeah. And I didn't even quite... Like, we became friends, and I was like, I think that's... I mean, I didn't have the vision board up anymore, but I was like, I'm pretty sure that's the woman who was with him on the vision board. I'm rewinding. This is back in my, like, receptionist days. I was hanging out with her once, and she wanted to go out. And, you know, I, I was, like, on struggle. Like, I had nothing to wear, right? And she's like, okay, I'm going to lend you some clothes. And she opened her closet and handed me a dress. And I was like, that is the dress from the vision board. It's like... <sighs> Yeah, it's like magic. It's like magic. I
0: tell people about manifestation. That's and right. Vision boards. It's it's like magic. It's
1: literally the dress. Yep. Um, and so mm, goosebumps. Right. Mm. So she recommended me for the job, and he knew who I was. So I called, I guess Simone, his assistant, or Joanne, but probably Simone, and I was told to come interview for the job. Yeah. And because he's Russell, he didn't have an office, like, in the Def Jam building or even in the Rush Communications building or the Rush Management building. He took all of his meetings at home or in his car or, like, at a restaurant, which I didn't know at the time, but I learned very quickly. So
2: hey.
1: I go to the interview in his apartment um, mm. on East 4th Street, I guess,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and I'm told to go to the top floor. He's It's like a several store stories, whatever, and he's on the top floor, like, in his gym area on the treadmill.
2: Yeah.
1: And so he's, like, on the treadmill. He's got, like, a phone. He's on speakerphone, and I'm, like, I sit on, like, the bench press. Right. There's, like, a sliding glass door where I think the model Beverly Peel was, like, outside doing yoga. I mean, it's, like, just a day in the life of Russell Simmons. Yeah. So I, he's, like, talking to me, but he's also talking to somebody on the phone about something else. It's, like, about maybe Fat Farm or something. Mm-hmm. And he, like, in between talking to the person on the phone and me, he basically offers me the job.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, he's like, how much – he's like, great. Okay, so go to Def Jam. It's at 160 Beric. And tell Lior that you're the new a and person. And I'm like, okay. He's like, oh, wait. Well, how much do you want to make? And I was like, well, um, how much can I make? And he's like, I don't know. Like, just how much do you want to make? And I was like, $45,000. Like, you know, because I was currently <laughs> making thirty. Okay. So I was like, $45,000. He's like, fine, fuck it. Tell Lior. <laughs> wow. <is> classic Russell. <laughs> so I get to Def Jan and Russ. I mean, Russell hasn't told Lior that I'm coming. Lior was the new president. Lior started as president the day I got there. He replaced David Harlston mm-hmm. and he had moved over from Rush Management mm-hmm. with Julie Greenwald, who was the VP of Marketing. Yes. And I was. Like instantly hated because Lior seemed to think that I had some kind of relationship with Russell that I didn't have.
2: Mm. But
1: I didn't even get it. You know, I was like slow. I was like, why does he hate me? You know, he's like, I don't need any of Russell's tall, skinny bitches in my way. And I'm like, what? Like, I, you know, and whatever. So, That's how I got the job. You know, maybe, like, a week later, I called Biggie, like, yo, I got the job. Like, come through with Junior Mafia. Like, you know, I was, like, hit the ground running trying to make stuff happen. Mm -hmm. And um, that's around the time that I heard the interlude that became You're All I Need to Get By. Um, But also, as this is all happening I'm, you know, I, I started in the conference room. Like, Lior didn't even give me an office at first. And eventually, I was, like, coming every day, doing stuff. And he was like, okay, all right, I guess she's not leaving. So he gave me an office. Like, you know. And then I started, you know, that's when I found, you know, I was doing the credits for Takal and heard the interlude that became the duet. Um. So I'm doing stuff, but I'm not really getting a lot of direction or support. And You he, said Takal? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, so the story of... The, the Mary Math duet. Right,
0: so we got to pause because we'll pause oh, yes. before we get to that. So now we, because now we know how you got the job at Def Jam.
1: That's how I got the job,
0: which is an amazing story. <laughs> Shout out to the fifteen thousand dollar upgrade. Right. <laughs> I don't know. In hindsight, was that what That was pretty good. Was I think that, that what was the people pretty was getting good? Now? I mean,
1: honestly, I think the person who left was making more. Oh, okay. But um, yeah,
0: you were happy with
1: it. I was happy. Okay, I was very happy.
0: So we at Dev Jam. Now, let's talk your um, success at Dev, Dev okay. Jam, the accolades. And I do want to start off with Mary J. Blige and Method Man, All I Need. Okay. You, my dear, was the <laughs> one, the mastermind, the brainchild behind that ama- amazing, legendary record. Just talk to me about how that came into fruition. I know the story. I've heard you say it before, but please bless my audience.
1: All right. Wow. <laughs> I'm happy to. <laughs> So, I was in the office, Mm -hmm. not being really, not being given like real AR stuff to do. I was just told to do administrative stuff. And I was like, cool, I'm gonna just get in where I can fit in. I'm just, I'm here. So, at this point, I'm thrilled to just be in the building. I'm at Def Jam, I have a job there. Mm -hmm. Even though I was not being given very much to do, I'm just amazed that I'm walking by like plaques for Public Enemy, you know. LL, you know, like I mean, EPMD, like you know yeah. what I'm saying, like every day. It's I, about I, I can't, you know, BC yeah. Boys, right, right. So I was like, I'm just going to get in where I can fit in. Like I really do want to make records and sign artists and be part of a creative process, but and prove that I have ears. But I will do kind of, I'll just do the paperwork, whatever I'm being given by Leor's team, because you know, it's it's something, right. So one of the tasks I was given to do was to type the credits for Method Man's first album, Takao. Yes. And so I was given, like, a big folder and a stack of papers that were, like, all the, you know, splits and writer's credits and samples and producers on all of the, you know, s- records, the tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, the overall album credits, engineers, mixers, you know, everything.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The, th- the thank yous, whatever, right? Right. And the lyrics.
0: Things that we used to love back in the day—the booklets that came in the CD, right—and all that,
1: right. And so I have to type that to submit it to Polygram, which was the parent company, and then they also would simultaneously take those credits, give them to the art department, who would then lay it out. Got it. But first, somebody has to take the like all the stacks of papers and put them in one place, like type them up, and that was me. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So I'm typing the credits, and you know, pulling all the you know paperwork together. But I'm also listening to the album just to make sure that it matches what I have in the paper. And it had the interludes. And one of the interludes was, Shorty, I'm there for you anytime you need me. For real, girls to me in your world. Believe me.
0: Nothing make a man feel, feel better, better than a woman.
1: Clean with a crown, let be down for whatever.
0: whatever. And
1: I'm like, <laughs> wait, what? Like, I'm supposed to just be typing. And it like it like took my breath away. It was just mm. there was no music. It was mm-hmm. just acapella, right? You know, you know the meth voice, right? And I'm like, what is that? I was like, this is beautiful. Mm. This is the most loving, romantic, selfless, touching thing I have ever heard a young black man say in the vocabulary of hip hop. Mm. Which is my language that I love, that I came here to be a part of. This is important. This is meaningful. Everyone has to hear this. And I took it home. And I actually forgot this until On the Record came out. And D'Angelo called me and reminded me, because at this point, I'm living with D'Angelo. That was your boo? That was my boo.
0: Wait, the singer, D'Angelo? It was.
1: He was How making does it brown feel, sugar. D'Angelo? It was. This is before we broke up. Ooh, and girl, you live.
2: Angie entered
1: the picture. <laughs> bless, bless Angie. Bless, bless Michael. Bless them all. Oh. But at the time, Ooh, I was Drew. Living with, with Michael. And I
0: that's his real name?
2: Yeah.
1: Nice, D'Angelo. <laughs> okay, Drew, go here, girl. <laughs> and I brought it home. And he reminded me. He was like, Drew, you played it like 50 times. Wow. And he said, your favorite line was, you my nigga, at the end. And he's like, you kept saying, he didn't say, you my bitch. He didn't say, he said, you my nigga, like, you're my, like, equals. Wow. And he was like, you were obsessed with that. And, you know, it's also like, looking back on it, he was making Brown Sugar, which most people hadn't heard. Wow. And it reminded me of Brown Sugar, like, because what I loved about his album Is that it was also the first time we were hearing love, romance, vulnerability, Mm. expressed. We'll leave shit down motherfucker out of it.
0: Oh, no, we don't. I love that song. We We keep it right. But you know what I'm saying? As (laughs) far as vulnerability and romance goes. (laughs)
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) In the vocabulary of hip hop infused soul. So it was was R&B. It was really more soul but it was, I mean, the drums, even I was there, you know, when he was making it and he would get upset with the, end, the mixer, Bob Power, because he was like, he was like, I don't want it to be mixed like an R&B record. I want it to be mixed like a Tribe record. That's why I called you, you know what I mean? And so mm. his record was made like a hip-hop record. It just had musicality and instrumentation because he's a musician and a singer. Yeah. But it, it was like one way of getting at like young black love with hip-hop Swagger. Yes. And this interlude felt like another way. Yes. And I was like, this is, and I was obsessed with it. And I called Russell, who was always doing 20 things, and tried to get him to give me the opportunity to turn it into a song. Yeah. And he was like, I called Lior. The album is literally like due. Like it's got to get turned in. It's on the schedule. Bring the Pain was out even before I got the job. I mean, there was no, you know. He was like, it's on the calendar. Like, we can't hold the album to make another record. Like, there's no reason to believe Method Man even wants it to be a record. Like, this is just your idea. Like, bless. Like, no, we can't do it. Right. So I let it go, but then I couldn't let it go. Mm. And then we were at a ANR like, meeting retreat, I think, in the Hamptons, where, like, we all got, like, choppered out. Like, it was Succession or something with Lior.
0: <laughs> Fabulous. And
1: we met... With Russell, who was, like, floating in an inner tube in the pool while we all sat at a table. <laughs> and I was like, guys, I can't let this go. Like, this has to happen wow. because no one is going to hear it if it's just an interlude. Like, a fraction of the people who hear it, like, who need to hear it, you know, it, it, will hear it if it's not a re- and records, you know? I said, so I have an idea. Why don't we make it a remix and put it on the B-side of whatever the next single is? Mm-hmm. Just make it a B-side because we haven't pressed the single yet. So if we make it really fast, we can put it on the back. I've looked at the calendar. There's time, you know. Wow. And they were like, oh, my God. Okay, well, what do you have in mind? I was like, well, it should be a duet. We need, like, a woman to sing on it. And they were like, okay, well, who do you think? I was like, well, I have somebody in mind, but I can't get her. But I could call my friend Lauren Hill because I was friends with Lauren. Mm -hmm. This is after their first album, but before the score. Mm -hmm. And Russell Simmons was like, who the fuck is Lauren Hill? Whoa. So I was like, okay. Okay. Well, I'll tell you who I really think it should be, but I don't know her. I think it should be Mary. And Puffy knows her, and you know Puffy. And, like, you know, like, he's like, well, call him. If you can get Puffy to do it, I will get, like, you know, we'll give you, like, a
0: week. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Yeah.
1: So I called Puff.
0: What's up, podcast land? It's your boy, C. Diddy, one half of the realest podcast ever. Are you tired of the same boring, unoriginal podcast that lack depth, originality, and substance? Well, I got a solution for you. Join us here every Monday and Thursday on Revolt Podcast Network for the realest podcast ever, where we bring you the best in entertainment news, fashion, sports, music reviews, politics, and street culture with a mixture of the most powerful guests that you're going to find anywhere on the internet. Join us every Monday and Thursday for the realest podcast ever.
2: He
1: was like, okay, let me hear this interlude. So I hand-delivered it to Bad Boy on 19th Street, and I left it with his assistant. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got back to my office, there was a voice message on my answering machine from Puffy, like, yo, call me. Wow. This shit is hot. Call me. So I call him. And he was like, Yo, I have an idea. I think you're onto something. Do you know the song by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, You're All I Need to Get By? And I was like, Of course. He's like, Well, can you sing it? And I was like, You're All I Need. You know, I'm singing it. He's mm-hmm. like, Okay. Now imagine the track from Children's Story. I'm like singing the Tammy Terrell. He's like, Shorty, I'm there. I was like, Oh my God. Mm. That is fire. <laughs> <laughs> and so Pop's like, okay, great. Book Studio A, Old Hit Factory. Now they're both old and gone. So I book wow. it. And I got the reels there. Um, actually there were no reels to get, because it was just Mary. He just cut the track and put Mary on the vocal. And then he flew in the interlude. Um, I think it was maybe even just like a rough stand-in of the Okay. Just from the, you know, the tape. Maybe maybe we had the dat. And then I played it for Lior, who started to realize, like, I didn't suck. He right. was, like, starting to realize, like, okay, she does something. Right. Um, And he was, like, okay, okay, this is dope. This is actually really dope. But we have a problem. And they were, like, actually, we'll make it the B-side, but let's shoot a video to it. Like, it's dope. Like, it's, it's going to be the B-side, but it'll be kind of the A-side. And he was, like, oh, my God, wait, we have a problem. We can't do anything without Riz's approval because this is a deal signed through Riz's production company. And Riz doesn't even know we're doing this. So... Here's what I need you to do. I need you to send me Mary's vocal. This is Lior, with nothing else, and just say that we have Mary's vocal and she wants to do this like thing with Method Man in the same Uh-huh. And so Riza heard that and was like, okay, I'll do it. And then Riza was like, okay, I need you to book Chung King. This is the old Chung King mm-hmm. across from the police building. So I booked Chung King. And Puffy worked at night and Riza worked during the day because Puffy was running bad boy during the day. Right. So during the day, Riza would work on his version. Sorry, mm-hmm. the um Razor Sharp, what became the Razor Sharp mix. Mm-hmm. And then at night, Puffy would work on his version, but Riza couldn't know that Puffy was working in his version. So I had to tell the engineers at Puffy session to rewind the reels, because they were physical reels. Right. Exactly to where Riza left them. We would mark them and rewind them. And then I would personally take them and give them to the engineers at Chung King and make sure he couldn't tell. The difference. And then he cut his version. And then we had both versions. (laughs) And then Lior and Russell and Julie and everyone, probably Kevin Lyles, Mike Kaiser, were like, okay, this is great. Let's shoot the video. Riz was like, okay. But we shot the video to the razor sharp mix because it was Riz's call.
0: So the video that we know and love today is, the, is Riz's
1: version. Is Riz's version. Okay. Right, 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 right. Okay. And so that's how that record became what it is. And in fact, one of my fondest, another biggie memory uh-huh. is being in the studio at the old Hit Factory Studio A mm-hmm. when Puffy was sort of doing the final mix. And it was really more like a rough mix, but it was sort of like listening to it all back from the top. Mm-hmm. And Mary was there, Puffy was there, Biggie was there, Meth was not there. Mm, mm. My friend Jason Jackson was there from from who was also at Def Jam on the marketing side. And we danced for like 20, 30, maybe 40 minutes to that, just the the original version of like Puff's version of that <laughs> remix on a loop. And on we were like, loop. yo, we just stepped in it. <laughs> we fucking stepped in it. But what is heartbreaking? is that because I was also literally surviving Russell Simmons this whole time because Mm. the harassment had already started. You were
0: dealing with his harassment during the creation, like out the gate. Out the gate. Okay. Because it was your first kind of first project. Yeah. Okay.
1: But from the gate, it was first, it was verbal harassment, inappropriate Mm. comments. Then it was grabbing me like in a restaurant, coming to my office, like exposing himself to me. Like, so I'm like, Making this record, I was then also making a soundtrack for the show.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I have to deal with him because Leor was still, like, kind of taking me seriously, but not really. Mm-hmm. And, and this happened maybe, the, the duet probably happened, like, three or four months into my tenure, maybe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, maybe two. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. hard. It's a blur. But, it, you know... I had to deal with Russell because Russell was the only person that really gave me anything to do. He gave me the show soundtrack to do. Mm -hmm. He was the one that really let me do the duet. Yeah. But he also was somebody that I had to be in front of to get his attention because he was, like, ADD. Like, you couldn't—on the phone, he was, like, talking to, like, three people while you were on the phone with him. You couldn't get him to, like, focus. Very busy. So I had to be in front of him, but I also had to be in front of him, but also not alone with him. Mm. So I'm, like, navigating being in front of him, bringing Mm -hmm. a friend, not being alone— So I can get my job done, Mm -hmm. but also not be in a situation where he's going to, like, do something that I don't want him to do Mm -hmm. with no backup at the office.
2: Mm.
1: So because of that, I was just so grateful to get these records made that I didn't ever stop to make sure that when those credits got typed, I got a credit. Oh, wow. So I didn't get a credit on the song.
0: You skipped your own damn name.
1: I I, I typed the credits for the show soundtrack, so I am— Co-executive producer with Russell Simmons. Okay. And I made the whole thing. I I called everybody, got all those tracks, sequenced it, did the interludes on mm-hmm. that too. Mm-hmm. But for this one, I had no credit. I, I don't have an AR credit. I don't have a producer credit, which frankly I should have because it was my idea. Right. It won, I believe, Def Jam's first Grammy.
0: Nice.
1: I don't have a plaque.
0: Mm. And usually a producer will usually get a Grammy.
1: Yeah. Oh, the producer would get the Grammy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it
0: was my idea. That's production, right? Mm-hmm. I, you know, Did like, you not know or was it just a mishap on your part because it was just so much going on? There was so much going on. But you knew that that was something oh, yeah, you were supposed to do. I just assumed because I had, I literally had to fight to make this thing that
1: right. it would be a given. A given was, by who? I don't did know. You just, like, did
0: you just think at the time of somebody Somebody else, else
1: is going to, whoever's okay. doing the credits for that single is gonna do it. And I was now working on the show soundtrack, Business. which was also like a lot of work, yeah. a lot of juggling, a lot of hustling, like yeah. multiple like artists I'm dealing with.
2: Yeah.
1: I had to get those records all cleared. I'm dealing with legal. Yeah. I have no real support. And I'm also avoiding Russell while also needing to interact with Russell. Yeah. So a lot going on. I didn't think to put my name on that duet and until On the Record came out, I wasn't even in the Wikipedia entry. Like I'm not even named
0: hasn't and changed
1: so I'm in the wicket, the wiki, okay, okay, I don't have a producer credit. I don't have the Grammy. I don't have a plaque. I don't have a check so for years <laughs> okay that record would come on, and I would like get sad. How do you feel now when you hear it? I mean, I'm proud, you know, mm. I'm proud that what is that twenty five guys more than that mm-hmm. thirty years later mm. It still matters. So many people have told me it was their wedding song.
0: Sure, it still matters.
1: Um, just like you still matter. Mm. So it's very gratifying. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I never got the bag, you know, in my career.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's all bittersweet.
0: Even now listening to the song, you still it's feel all, a bit sad. All the
1: records I helped to make, I love okay. them, I'm proud of them, yeah. and it is bittersweet. Yeah. Because I never got the bag. Yeah. For any of it. I Partly because I just was so in it for the love mm. that I didn't stop to, like, you know, grab the bag, grab the credit, grab the... When you say bag, are you referring to credit or money? Both. Okay. I got neither. Okay. um, I got credits on the, like, My Love Is Your Love, Maria Maria, you know. Which
0: we're going to get into when it comes to your Arista record days. I got
1: credits on those. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Yeah. So before we get into that, because I want to keep it of a celebratory moment yes. of, of talking more about your accolades. Great. Love that story when it comes to Method Man and Mary J. Blige. And congratulations. And you're deserving of mm. all the flowers in creating that amazing song. As you tell the story, I'm visualizing. You're such a great storyteller. You. I'm visualizing how it all came into fruition. I mean, for one, the vision board for one and then next getting the call. Uh, from Russell team and, and the whole process, or I guess not audition process, but no, kind of audition, yeah, a little bit the interview <laughs> interview yeah. process, mm-hmm. to being so stuck in your idea of wanting to get this record done, fresh off of a just an interlude, yeah, and bringing it up in meetings that they already told you to no know.
1: many times,
0: <laughs> shut it down. I love that story because I want my audience to understand that when you have this feeling, this gut feeling, stick with it. Mm -hmm. And if you would have just took that no, there would be no Grammy. There would be no all I need. That wouldn't exist. You would not be walking down the aisle with that song. Whoever got married to that record, you know what I mean. And it's so important to our culture. And you did that. So again, just. Keep dreaming and yeah, and, and stick to it. Like that's kind of the message that I wanted to um to bring up. With that, it's, it it gave me goosebumps hearing mm. you just say how you stuck with it, and 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 we're here mm. with that record. It's it's amazing. Well,
1: thank you, and I do hope because I do see myself as like. The elder, a little bit, you know, talking to the young folks. Um, (laughs) It is about sticking with it. Yeah. Um, I played, I'm, you know, I went to like a little private school, but I played basketball from like fourth grade to 12th grade. And I was tall for a while until then I wasn't. Okay. So I was a rebounder. Yeah. And, you know, it's that same mentality where I would just, I would literally be like, get in the vicinity and you will get a second shot opportunity because I will get the ball. And if it was an offensive rebound, I just got the chip shot. Mm Mm-hmm. If it was a defensive rebound, I got the you know the ball and the outlet pass to the guards. Yeah. And at the end of games, I have a loud stomach, so that's oh, on the mic. It. I'm sure I picked it up. <laughs> I, when I did the documentary, they were like, "So you said something really great, but then your stomach was like really loud." So we're, you know, we're not going to really use that. <laughs> um. So, you know, I was like always at the end of games. Like I would realize I had jammed two fingers. I had all these scratches. I had sprained my ankle. Yeah. But in the game. I did not notice. I was just in there. In it to win it. I'm looking at that ball, that orange ball, (laughs) and I am going to get it.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'm
1: going to go back up with it until I get two, or I'm going to just box out and pivot and get it to y'all to bring it down to our side of the court. Period. Period. And you brought those skills. And that's how I move at the end of the day, if I believe. Yes. If I believe. You believed. If I believe. And I believed. Love that. I believed in hip hop so
0: much. And we're celebrating 50 years of it. Yeah. So your intuition was always right. Yeah. And then we have the show soundtrack. So let's talk about the show uh, soundtrack, um, the process of that, submitting the songs. It was a lot of great songs on there. Tupac is on there. Yes. Biggie is on there. Bone Thugs, they yeah. shot you out on, <laughs> on their song. Method and Ridman. How oh, high? Was that their first
1: collab? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was. Right. Yeah.
0: Was that something, like, how did that work being in control of that soundtrack? Did you guys pick songs from scratch? Was it your idea to say, hey, Matt, you and Rich should do a record? Right. So I started
1: out, once again, Russell gave me this thing to do. Mm -hmm. And then, like, nobody told me how to do it. Nobody gave me resources. Nobody gave me any tools. So I'm like, okay, it's a soundtrack about hip hop. I asked Leo if I could go to L.A. where they were making it and, like, meet the directors. And he was like, no, why would you do that? You don't need some fancy trip to L.A. I was like, never mind. I was just trying to figure out, like, what is this movie? Yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. Whatever. It's Figuring this- out
0: the tone. Like yeah. To- yeah.
1: But I was like, okay, that's cool. It's a it's like a survey of hip-hop circa 1993,
0: 1994. My
1: favorite era. Great time. <laughs> so I am just going to, like, make this up. I'm going to call my favorite artist, and I'm going to say, hi, my name is Drew, and I work at Def Jam. And I think you're dope. And I think you should be on the soundtrack representing the Midwest or the South or the West Coast or women. Sadly, that's just like one category. One it shouldn't just be or women, but that was what it was. Right. You know, or hip hop soul. Or mm. kind of like the native tongues. Or, you know, like I think I wanna I wanna kinda cover the the different spots, right? right. So, you know. Back then, we had Video Music Box, and that's how I found out about Bone Thugs and Harmony.
2: Mm.
1: That's, like, where I would find about find out about artists that weren't, like, Hot 97 New York market right. artists.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, I would always call and request, like, Outkast. Like, I actually found out about Outkast from, like, their Christmas sampler back when I was at Zamba, which is how I met L.A. Reid, but I'll come back to that. And then I would, like, request Players Ball again and again on Video Music Box. Um, so... I was in love with Bone thugs and harmony just from like whatever their like first joint was on Video Music Box. And I called and I was like, basically I would say to everyone, did you overcut your last album? If you overcut your last album, send me whatever didn't make the album. Let me see what you got. And that's how I found It's an Everyday Thing. That's how I got my block from Tupac, who I did speak (sighs) on the phone but never met. Um,
0: Conversation. How was that with Tupac? What's that? The conversation with Tupac. I
1: mean, it was just cool. I was like, "Yo, I'm a fan. Yo, I love this song. You know, I, you know, Easy Mo B is gonna like touch it a little bit more, but like, you know, I really appreciate it." And who was one of his producers already? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Easy Mo B did that track.
0: Is, did he connect? I mean, what did you just find? Like phone book, Tupac? How did I do Like, it? how did that go down?
1: You know, it's again. This also goes back to me being the kid of like politicians, local politicians. Yeah. Like, I had to just knock on doors. Like, you just figure it out, right? So. I'm not even sure. I just would maybe call the label. Who's the manager? I'm a def. I would just drop that def jam hard. Like I'm a def jam. I'm legit. Yeah. Who's the manager? I'm doing a soundtrack. Maybe every now and then I would like get Russell to call, but not really. Like I really just sort of called the label, got the manager, called the manager. Did you overcut? That's how I got my block. Um.
0: He was like, "Yo, yeah, I got a record for you." Yeah, he
1: sent me a couple, but I liked. I picked my block.
0: Dope.
1: Um. And everybody sent me like two or three. Yeah, you know, that's how I got uh, Sugar. What's up, Star? Which Mm. I love that record so much. I also chose that because I wanted the the female MC to be empowered.
2: Mm -hmm. Like she's
1: like, you know, if I like what I see, then the drinks are on me.
2: I was like, that's what I'm talking (laughs) about. You know what I'm saying?
1: So I wanted that. Uh Um, you know, I wanted hip hop soul, so I wanted a Mary record. So we got everyday, day, uh, every day it rains.
0: Every day um, and I love that song. so I
1: had all these dats, like okay. either cassettes or dats, like stacked in a tower in my office. Uh-huh. But I had no right to use these songs. It was just the manager sent them to me. And then I was like, okay, that's dope. And then I was like, okay, but now what? And so then like one day I just, I think like Lior kept blowing me off. I kept trying to tell you I was still getting blown off. And so I met with Russell. At the Bowery Bar, which kind of opened while I was at Def Jam. Like, we switched from Tabak to the Bowery Bar when he opened Bowery Bar. Okay. He was, like, one of the owners. Oh. And I played him the songs. I'm not even sure, like, if we went to the car, whatever, but I played him the songs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Or maybe I gave them to him, whatever. Because, again, I needed to be alone with him. I needed to be in his face to get stuff done, but I also didn't want to be alone with him. So I'm, like, I was always, like, juggling that, you know. Right. So he heard the records, and then he was like, yo, these are dope. We met again at the party bar and he called Lior and was like, yo, like, he's trying to tell Lior, like, she's got all these records for the soundtrack. And I was like, I'm going to, like, run out of time to turn these in and time to meet the deadline and the movies coming out. Like, guys, like, somebody needs to call the lawyers and clear these records right. so I can. Leor calls me the next day, yells at me, like, for going around him to Russell. I'm like, but, like, you know, you don't ever talk to me. And then he's like, get the records. Let me hear these. Let me hear these records, through, You know, whatever. Tall, skinny, you know, the Lior <laughs> accent. So I bring in the stack and I start playing them. And after like the third or fourth one, he's like, stop, stop. And he calls Julian, he calls Kevin Lyles, and he calls Mike Kaiser, and he calls everyone in. He calls Frank Cooper in, the head of legal. He's like, this is fire. This is fire. She's put together a soundtrack. It's fucking fire. But we need a sing, we need two things. We need to clear the songs, Frank. You're on it. And he, like, hired an outside attorney who's actually Gary um, Watson, who's in in the film, yeah. who came in to help me get these, you know, all the licenses that I needed quickly for all the records I'd gotten mm-hmm. and to get the reels because I just had tapes. So we also had to get all the reels shipped to me to not get me started on my intern who I fired losing the Tupac reel at the 34th <sighs> Street FedEx. And I went there and went over the counter. I was like, excuse me. And I went in the back and I oh, found it. Okay, I was like, that's how we got my block. Excuse me. <laughs> they were like, ma'am, you can't do that. I was like, watch me. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> so I found it. But um, anyway, so we had to get the reels. We had to get the licenses. But we mm-hmm. also needed a single. So it was actually Julian Lior who said, let's get meth and Redman on together. Because we need a single. Yeah. And... I actually knew Eric Sermon because mm-hmm. my I'd signed him at Zomba, mm-hmm. so I was able to like you know reach out easily, help set that up, and that's how how High came together. Yeah, wow. As the Look at that. Yeah, and, and then it ended up like debuting at number one in on the R and B chart, number four in the pop chart, and I did get the executive producer credit on that. Um,
0: we got our credits, baby. And we
1: got our credits, and then in the bag. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, no, because this is. <laughs> Sorry to go dark. I know we're trying to be uplifting. But I was actually assaulted when that record was still at the top of the charts. So I was negotiating with Russell at the time. I was trying to retroactively negotiate a point on the duet. And I was trying to negotiate a point on the soundtrack when I was assaulted. And I quit. And I just never gave up on that. I gave up.
0: So, for the people that's listening, because we we I know you mentioned a few times the run-ins with uh, Russell Simmons, and I guess for legal purposes, I just have to use the word allege. Yeah. So, um, Bye. okay, right. No disrespect to you at yeah. all. So, uh, on the record is a documentary again that came out. It's still out. It's on HBO Max. Please just check it out and watch it for yourself. Um, Drew, you have accused Russell Simmons of rape. Um, you plus 19 other women. And with this, uh, with your journey at Dev Jam, you talked earlier about having to avoid his advances a few times while working there. Yeah. And one night, it, like you said, it went really, really dark. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can, if you like to right now, you can talk about that night? Sure. Okay. Um. So
1: Russell would... Like, again, so I had to walk this tightrope between needing to be in his physical presence to get anything done. Right. But also making sure that when I was in his physical presence, I was not alone because it became clear to me very early on that he would be inappropriate if I did that. However, he was also always profusely apologetic. So, like, if he conference—like, oftentimes I would get on the phone with him and I'd need to conference him into, like, three people in a row to, like, get— should Knight to clear Snoop's interlude, right? Yeah. Okay. Now I need to get Easy E to clear Bone Thugs, like whatever, like mm-hmm. things where I just needed to crank through like Russell calls,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and like in between the calls he would like say inappropriate things. Okay, like in, like you have no idea how ho- excited I am while you're on the type thing, right? But mm-hmm. he was more graphic,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I was like, I really need you to just focus, like, on what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. However, in hindsight, I realized he was also grooming me and testing me.
2: Mm.
1: And I'm also a survivor of childhood trauma. Oh,
2: sorry to hear that. Which
1: I actually had repressed. Don't get me started. I didn't think that was real, but it is. And it didn't come back to me until I became a mother.
2: Mm.
1: And so what I now realize is the part of me that was never rescued as a kid is the part of me that didn't know I could be like, fuck off. So instead of being like, stop. Fuck off. I was like, stop, stop. Like, no, really money. Let's just focus money. Mm. Let's just focus on what we're doing money. Stop. And he's like, yo, I'm sorry. I'm an idiot. It's like, it's fine. Let's just focus. Just don't do that again, but let's just focus. Whereas now that I'm like more healed, I'd be like, stop. Or I'm not fucking coming in here tomorrow. Like I'm healed. Mm. I wasn't healed. Mm. So I didn't have the like base and the like spine. Mm. I had the spine to fight for a record, but I didn't have the spine to fight for and protect myself. Mm. And so, you know, he would always apologize and then he would back off for a while and then he would like do it again. And then it would be a little worse each time. So then I would sort of increase my layers of protection around being like not alone with him. Right. But I also, and it was also making me increasingly depressed. But I was also like, I worked really hard and I came here and this is the job I wanted. I need a hit with my name on the back and then I'll quit. And I didn't get my name on the back of the duet. So let me get it on the next thing and it needs to be a hit and then I can quit. And it was literally like that window had just opened. I mean, the record had really just come out. Like maybe it was out a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. When I ran into him, I was leaving the Bowery Bar. I was there with friends. He was there separately. He had left before me and I actually made a point of not leaving before him because a couple times he followed me out. So I was like, okay. He'd been gone maybe 15 minutes. I was like, okay, he's gone. He lives Mm. a block away, right? I'm good. So I leave. It was drizzling. So I was like, you know, I would have walked home. I lived on 26th Street. He was on 4th Street. I was like, it's not far. It's 22 blocks. I got it. But it was like starting to rain. I was like, you know what? I'm going to catch a cab, but I didn't have enough money. And so the chemical bank ATM machine was around the corner. So I was going to go to chemical bank and get some cash and get a cab.
2: Right.
1: So I'm walking down 4th Street from Bowery, crossing Lafayette, about to go to Broadway. He lives on 4th and Lafayette. And he yells across the street, Drew. And I see he's sitting in, in front of his building on his cell phone, talking to somebody, whatever. Right. And he's like, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just heading home. I'm just going to get a cab. And he's like, yo, you have the number one R&B record in the country. You should get a car service.
2: Mm.
1: And maybe it wasn't even number one at the time. I think it was. I'm pretty sure he said that. Um, And I was like, whatever, I'm good. He's like, no, for real. He's like, you know what? I'm on with Simone. Yo, Simone, order Drew a car. He's like, you know what, Drew? I'm going to get you a car home. You should get a car home. You're a big deal. You're a big deal at Polygram now. Like, you're a really a big company. deal. Mm. Like, you are – like, you really did it. Like, the soundtrack is really great. And I was like, wow, thanks. He's like, you know what? There's a record, a new record, a demo that you are going to love, and I want you to hear it. I was like, okay, well, you know what? Um, Like, do you want to go get it? Or he's like, you know what? Run upstairs with me. He was. I think he was like, I have to go to the bathroom, whatever. And, like, you can just take it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was like, well, you know what? Like, I can – you know, oh, he was like, I was like, I'll, I'll play it for you, and I was like, well, I'd rather just take it. He's like, okay, you know what? Fine, I have to go to the bathroom. Come upstairs. I'll tell you where it is. Just grab it, and I will. Like, your car will be here. Like, by the time you get the CD, and you go back downstairs, the car will be here. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. I'm thinking at this point. Okay, this is fine. He's also apologized for being inappropriate multiple times. And he also said, I'm a big deal at Polygram. So I'm like, okay, he's not going to fuck up in front of the white people. I am mean, just straight up. Wow, like,
2: yeah. I think
1: I'm okay now. Uh-huh, you felt safe. I'm because safe. Because you felt valued at the time. I'm moment. valued. I've established myself now twice. It. I'm on the like radar at the parent company now. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm just, I'm not even going to stay and listen to the CD. I'm going to take it. So I go upstairs like we walk in together. I remember having a little bit of like a eerie feeling because it was quiet and there's usually like people there. You know, because you've been there before. I've been there. Okay, but I'd never really been past the like first area. Was you this also, your first time alone with him? This is my first time alone with him in his apartment for sure.
2: Right. Oh, absolutely. Apartment.
1: Okay. I mean, yeah. I'd gone in with people. Right. But he also used to have an office down the hall in the same building, so I had gone up there alone, like in the day, mm-hmm. knowing like he's like I'm here with you know LL and so you know somebody else in the middle of the day, and I'd gone there. Yeah, but I'd never gone to the apartment alone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I'd also never gone to the apartment past the front, like the where you walk in, other than the first time I was there for my interview.
2: Mm, got it. So
1: I go in, and I'm a little bit disoriented because it's like a little bit. It's just quiet. Like, he also has an assistant. There was Joanne, I think, was assistant who lived with him. She wasn't around. Mm. So I was kind of thrown off by this the stillness of it all. Right. But then I was sort of reassured because he didn't even, like, s- stay near me. He was like, I got to go. I'm going to – he's like, I got to – like, whatever, I got to pee, whatever. He, like, goes in a different direction. I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? He's, like, kind of away from me. He's like, go down that hall. Just go straight till you get to the end. And when you get to the end, make a right in the last room. Yeah. And there's a CD player on the left. It's in the CD player. It's like in, I was like, it's in the machine. He's like, yeah, just turn the machine on. It's in the machine.
2: Okay. I'm
1: like, okay. And he's like, I'm like, you know, he's walking away. So I'm sort of like, he's like, I'm like, okay, just straight. He's like, you know, keep going straight. So now I'm like going deeper and deeper in his apartment, but I'm also feeling safe because he's not with me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So in my mind. In
0: close proximity. Really. I'm not in
1: physical close proximity. I'm uh-huh. like, the car is probably here by now. By the time I get the CD, I'll be like back out, and he's, you know, I'm never going to be like in close proximity mm-hmm. with him in this space. So I walk in, I walk in the hall, I make a right into what I now realize was his bedroom, but it didn't cross my mind, you know, I'm still looking for the CD player. I'm looking for the CD player. And also, even though he had been inappropriate before, he was always like sheepish about it, and then would apologize was like, I'm sorry, I'm just an idiot. I'm an idiot. So I'm still not even thinking he's menacing. I'm thinking he's more, like,
0: inappropriate and handsy. Worst case scenario, you feel like, this will just have to be my 10th time telling him to no and back to stop off. and, like, that's please
1: stop. That's what I'm thinking. Worst case scenario. But like, yeah. yo, that's what I'm thinking. Like, worst case scenario. So I go in. I'm, like, you know, not even really paying attention to the fact that it's his bedroom. I'm like, doesn't matter. Like, okay, I see the CD player. It's like very fancy. He's like rich. So it's like mm-hmm. the kind of CD player where it doesn't just say like power. You know, everything is like smoothed right. over, you know, like mm-hmm. so. I'm like struggling to find the power button. Right. Um, I finally figure out how to turn it on. I turn it on, and like I figured out how to eject it, and the tray opens, and there's nothing in it. And so I'm like yelling to him, I'm like, Russell, Russell, there's nothing in the machine. There's nothing in the tray. And he's, he's still not in the room with me. He's like yelling, it must be something else on the shelf. I'm like, well, what is it called? Now I'm starting to get like a little bit like uncomfortable that I'm like here too long, but I'm still like, it's fine. He's still not even in the room with me. I'm gonna just find this thing and leave. And you know, what's really crazy is that for years, I have had this memory of being in a room with Russell Simmons, with a glass window next to me, with a, looking for some amazing demo that i never found and wondering for like 20 years what was it when was that and was it dope cuz mm. i heard it was dope and i when when is that memory from and it wasn't until after i read my story in the new york times and i read the other three stories and i realized this pattern that i was like it was bait it that puzzle piece dropped into that night it's almost like it was like that memory got knocked out of the out of the chronology of my of my of of what happened next that you know i was like always wondering what was that cd and then i realized after like in december 2017 like i'm reading the article i like look up from the article and i'm like there was no cd mm. like mm. because what happened next is i'm like you know picking up CDs reading the names yelling to him and the next thing I know, he, I, he's, I don't even hear him come in because I'm, like, focused, right? Mm. He, like, grabbed me. He's naked. He's wearing a condom. I'm now alone with him, and he is a different version of him than I have ever seen before in my life. Cold. No sheepish. No he's fighting me. Well, I'm fighting. I'm losing, but I'm fighting. You know, I'm saying no. I'm probably fighting, crying, but fighting. Mm. Um, I fought. You know, all. I mean, on. I mean, now I'm in his bed. He. I don't know if this is why he does yoga, but he had like a pin move. Mm. You know, where like one knee was like on a leg, and then like the weight of his body was on my other arm, and I'm pinned and i'm i'm still fighting though
0: is he saying anything at this point
1: what he said was stop fighting stop fighting like cold stop fighting and at that point honestly this is crazy but he has like a uh, canop- canopy kind of like not with the cloth or whatever but like you know the bars like the yeah. metal and i'm Pinned, and there's like a pair of handcuffs dangling from like over one of the bars. now, And I didn't, I mean, I never had any contact with them, but they scared the living daylights out of me. I was like, wait, this could get worse. This could get way worse. Mm. So I was like, and I just, it's like, you know, flight was out of the question too late to flee it's like flight what is it flight uh flight fight or fight fawn freeze oh it's flight fawn freeze i think okay. it's like so flight was gone i tried that and then bonding please like i begged him and then it was like freeze and it's actually crazy i actually you know like i work out and whenever they try to get me to do like the either push-ups or the like, chest presses.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I like go back to that. I'm like, I have no.
2: Mm.
1: Don't I don't have that like that this that strength.
0: You felt like you never had that. Yeah, I, re- I still don't. I'm terrible at push-ups. <laughs> right, but and in that position yeah, takes you back to that place exactly. Right,
1: and that I could not have been weaker in that right. position. Right.
0: Um and. That's what happened. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And again, um Russell Simmons has denied that ever happening. Just want to put that out there. Right. Um, he actually made a, a statement. I'm trying to see. I do I think I have it here. Right. He said, These horrific accusations have shocked me to my core. And all of my relations have been consensual. He has other statements that I probably will quote later. But when mm. you read that. How did that make you feel?
1: Me, you no. Know. Um, I, I thought it was just me until the Me Too movement started and two women came forward. And that's when I decided to come forward because I, I realized, I was like, oh my God, he's a serial predator. Like, I, I never understood. I was like, why did he snap on me like that? Why did he do
0: that to me? All those years you thought it was just you. Yeah. You thought it was an isolated. And, and I blamed myself.
1: Want... Like, how did, what did I do? Why did he think that I would – why would he do that to me, you know? And then I realized when the other two women came forward that he was – he had done this to other people. And that's when I went to the New York Times and I wasn't going to let them use my name. And then the Jenny Lumet piece came out. Right. Which was very similar to mine. Mm
2: -hmm. I didn't know
1: Jenny Lumet at all. I actually met her maybe a month after the New York Times article came out. We met for lunch. We'd never met before. And she asked me because it was the same room, if I remembered anything about the room mm. that was distinctive. And I started to describe the bed, and she just started bawling like the, the post, the the bars.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we both did. And the waiter was like, like bringing us tissue.
0: They were like, Are you guys okay? Right. Because um, maybe for her as well, she thought that she was the only oh, one. Oh, I think she probably did. And when you meet someone saying, me too, and then your stories kind of have similarities. That's it. It's like, oh, shit, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And I'm sure that feeling of feeling like you're not alone is overwhelming and emotional in in itself.
1: It is overwhelming. That's the beautiful
0: thing about the Me Too movement.
1: That is a beautiful thing. Unfortunately, because of what happened with the documentary and Oprah's exit and the way that went down, Mm -hmm. it created these fractures in the relationship with a lot of the Russell Simmons survivors, because we all kind of found ourselves in the middle of this storm, mm. and it really damaged a lot of those relationships, which are which was heartbreaking to me because it was sort of like the first, the closest thing I said to them, and I've said I was I said at the time I said this is the closest we'll ever come to having a witness, is each other, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it was like really comforting, and then it just became chaos. Between you and
0: the other, well, it became victims? chaos when
1: Oprah Winfrey exited as the executive producer right before Sundance, and right. people were trying to, I think, get some of us to agree with her decision or whatever. It's not clear to me, but it became very chaotic behind the scenes.
0: It caused a division. Amongst it caused you and a the division so- between
1: us, and it also just made it like hell for us. Like, to, it was already going to be scary enough to be in this movie, but we were in a movie that then we had to defend not just against, you know, Russell Simmons, but also we had to defend our involvement in a film that Oprah had dropped at the last minute, like a hot potato. So mm. it created a lot of stress, and stress mm-hmm. doesn't bring out the best in people, and, you know, myself included. I mean, we were all terrified. And because I'm so predominantly featured in the film, like— A lot of pressure was placed on me to stay or to go. I mean, I wasn't really pressured to stay. I really wasn't. In fairness to the filmmakers, they kind of laid off. But then I decided to stay.
0: You had a moment where you felt like you didn't want to anymore? There was like
1: a three-day period where I was like in the fetal position and I was like, I'm out.
0: After Oprah's departure, which you're not quite sure why. You never spoke to her? No. Never met her?
1: Never met her. So I don't understand it, but I was going to... Back out, too. I mean, mm. she's Oprah Winfrey, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I've admired her, like, basically, like, as long as she's been Oprah Winfrey, to my knowledge.
0: Right. And I'm not quite—well, from my understanding, the reason why she uh, walked away from the film is she was quoted saying creative differences between her and the producers of the film. Right, which was just—
1: Kind of perplexing because she'd been very involved in the film for seven months and Mm -hmm. Harpo submitted it to Sundance. Like Mm -hmm. it wasn't the filmmakers that submitted it. Harpo, her company submitted it. And there was actually even a press release that came out on December 2nd, 2019, in which Harpo referred to me as a brilliant former record executive. And it said that Oprah Winfrey is proud to be the executive producer of an untitled Me Too documentary premiering at Sundance. That was December 2nd, 2019. She exited on January 10th, 2020. So
0: a little over a month later, right? You were brilliant, and she she was was proud of the film. She was proud of the film. Her company submitted it to Sundance. She also was quoted even after her departure, saying that she believes these women, including you, she has said that. Mm -hmm. So yes, she was quoted saying creative differences, but was there actually a quote where her saying that she saw that there she felt that there were inconsistencies?
1: There were also there, there was a quote where she, that I believe she gave both on Gail King's show and also in the New York Times, where she said she believed all of us, but she felt there were inconsistencies in my story, and I would like to know what those inconsistencies are.
0: Mm. Coming from her, Oprah Winfrey, who we all as Black women admire,
1: I still admire her. I will always admire her, and I blame. The toxic patriarchy, and she is also, in spite of all of her incredible power, still, you know, we're all black women in the world. And so I'm prepared to accept her apology.
0: Hmm, I'm I looking feel for an apology. i my- an, owed an apology
1: because what inconsistencies in my story are you talking about? Right. Yeah. That's hurtful. And it's also helpful to Russell Simmons. Whether that was the intent or not, it creates just a little bit of confusion, just a little bit of a cloud for him to slither on back out, which is exactly what he's done.
0: Watching the Breakfast Club interview, he brought up Oprah Winfrey's name multiple times okay. as if that was something that should be considered to the point to somehow prove that he's innocent. Mm-hmm. Oprah Winfrey backed out. out. I mean, there you go. I mean, it was like, it was very painful for me. My
1: phone blew up. You know, Jamie Lumet called. She asked me to tweet something for her. She's not on Twitter. I mean, it was painful. You know, Salai Abrams, who's an incredible, you know, woman and a survivor also spoke out about it. You know, it was painful for all of us. So, yeah. I mean, I accept that that was not her intention. But that was what The result was that it gave him room to cast doubt on all of us
0: and our credibility with his platform and his power. It's very harmful. You mentioned that you were like an apology. You feel like you're owed that from Oprah. What do. do you want from Russell? Oof. Tough. You know, I... Part two with Drew Dixon will continue next week. What's going on, everybody? This is Dr. Shonda, and I am here from the Paging Dr. Shonda podcast. If you're a fan of psychology and mental health, be sure to check out and subscribe to the Paging Dr. Shonda podcast, a show that covers and talks about buzzing topics in pop culture, mental health in the black community, and faith-based topics. And it's brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip-hop, powered by creators.